Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Our guest today needs little in the way of introduction. Daniel Jurgen, a leading authority on energy, geopolitics, and the global economy, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, and now vice chairman at S&P Global. Last year, Daniel joined the podcast to talk about his most recent book, The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations, which is now available in an updated version and in paperback. The book is a bestseller, and National Public Radio has described it as a masterclass on how the world works, and the London Sunday Times has called it a wonderful book on the transformation of the global map of power and wealth. The book is eerily prescient on the current events of today and the backdrop to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What does that mean for the short-term energy security of the world? And what are the long-term consequences for energy transition and geopolitics? As always, you can support the show by leaving us a review on the podcast platform you're listening on. And I hope you enjoyed the episode. Daniel, thanks for joining us again. Paul, very pleased to be back. Thank you. It's coming up to a year since we last had you on the show. And in that episode, we talked about your recently published book and now out in paperback, The New Map. And it's fascinating how on rereading that in light of the current events, how prescient much of what is in there has, you know, was. The two big things that have really, I guess, arisen since we last spoke to add to this narrative has been the, the energy crisis and the associated commodity super cycle, a structural shift up in prices. And then secondly, and of course, very immediate right now is the Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine and the background to that and the, the, out, the consequences of that. Could we, I guess, let's start with the first part, the energy crisis or, and the, the, the commodity super cycle. Has this been a long time coming? What is your take on it and, and when it began? Thank you, Paul. What I did because it brought out the new edition with a new epilogue and a, to bring the book up to as close to the minute as I could, along with an essay about the risks around the South China Sea, which gets to one of the other big themes, which is the ultimate geopolitical question, which is the US versus China. But on your question of the energy crisis, I think one of the things I wanted to do in the new map was unpack what is energy transition, because people talk about it so casually as though it just happens and looked at, you know, going back to previous energy transitions, dating it from actually that the energy transition began in January 1709 when an English metalworker figured out how to make uh, iron better with coal rather than wood. But they all took a long time. And so there was this notion that, oh, you know, you could do it in 28 years, you could do half of it in eight years. But what I came to the conclusion in the new map is you know, that's pretty tough to do, to change the energy foundations of a, what is a roughly a $90 trillion economy in, uh, in such a short time. When you, as, as the International Energy Agency said, you don't have half the technologies you need. And I think the, I mean, I'd say the current energy crisis began September, October of 2021, well before Ukraine. And it began with the economic recovery coming out of COVID, and the discovery that there had been underinvestment, what I've started to call preemptive underinvestment in conventional energy resources. So coal was suddenly very tight. 
uh, LNG was suddenly very tight, and then oil very tight. And this was, you know, this was different than other energy crises because it didn't begin with oil; it began with coal and natural gas, and LNG being pulled into China, into Asia, because running up the limits of coal, and then leading to problems in Europe, where you saw prices, you know, in the autumn and December getting up to being 10 times normal for LNG and sometimes higher. And so that was already in place and before the crisis began. And I think, uh, Paul, it was really puzzling because you had the, the Glasgow Climate Conference at the same time as you had an energy crisis in Europe. And it kind of it was strange. The dots were not really connected. But I think one has to look at it and say, what lessons do you take away? Was this a one-off? Or is this telling you that this movement towards energy transition is going to be more turbulent and more challenging than all those PowerPoints that people like to show seem to indicate? And what do you mean by preemptive underinvestment? Is this companies, organizations simply not wanting to invest further in hydrocarbon infrastructure and you know coal facilities, whatever it might be? in anticipation of energy transition, or is it, you know, to some extent forced because there isn't the financing there for Well, I think it's the latter. It's the pressure from investors and it's the pressure from regulators who, you know, you're really struck by the gap between many regulators and the markets that they regulate and their understanding of markets. And I think you see this in Europe's struggle to come up with what they call the taxonomy, which is basically the EU government basically allocating investment, making investment decisions. And usually that doesn't work out very well when governments start doing that, but penalizing investment, the energy resources that still provide 80% of the world's energy, and just assuming that somehow all the new stuff will be there when it isn't there. So I think it's, it's, I don't think it's so much volitional. I think it's the pressure on companies. And as you say, the access to capital. Give you one example. I did a roundtable with a group of African energy ministers, and they were complaining bitterly about the facts that European banks will not finance the energy infrastructure they need. And the statement that really jumped out at me was the energy minister of Senegal saying, we need to build a, a natural gas pipeline so that people don't burn wood and waste. They need it for health. They need it for indoor air pollution. They need it for economic opportunity. And the banks say, no, sorry, we we don't finance gas pipelines. And her comment was, they've taken away the ladder that we need for economic growth and poverty reduction, health improvement. They've taken away the ladder. And then she said, what do they expect us to do, jump or fly? And that really, I think, captured for me this kind of growing north-south divide on uh, how to approach climate issues and how to approach energy issues. Yeah. And that same trend is now threatening the global energy markets in the sense that, you know, there isn't the financial support to provide the liquidity to the traders so that they can manage this huge volatility and that huge run up in prices. I didn't realize that the trading community is also having issues about access to capital. That just compounds the problem. Yeah. Before we move on to kind of the the ramifications geopolitically, in your mind, is this part of the problem is that because we don't have a a price set against carbon in particular, but other pollutants, that's just seizing up the financial 
industry, the, the institutions, because they can't effectively say, okay, we can do this project, but we, this is how we'll account for the greenhouse emissions, for the carbon and so forth. There's an absence of that. There are big voluntary markets. There's some compliance markets around the world, notably in Europe. But there's just, that's one of the issues that we're facing here is that banks just can't do it because of other pressures and there's no way to price in. Yeah, I think that's part of it. And then you see in Europe that when you get into a crisis, the carbon market uh, itself can be a problem because of the additional cost that it imposes and what it does to industry. So Europe is trying to work its way around that problem in part by setting up these uh, carbon adjustment border mechanisms otherwise known as carbon tariffs, to kind of protect their industry. But you see when you get into a crisis situation that the markets themselves uh, get distorted. Yes. So do you see a sustained increase in energy prices for the long term, or is this a short-term shock? I know that's a big question. Well, whenever a consensus sets in and uh, everybody has a great sense of where things are going to go, after you know about three years, everything changes. I mean, we've had, I can remember in June of 2014, $100 a barrel said this then Saudi Petroleum Minister was a new, uh, new normal. Uh, CEOs said that. Then it was 40 or 50. Now, you know, before this crisis, we thought kind of a range of 65 to 90 seemed a good planning range, but now we're moved into a wholly new world in which you know, the new map is getting fragmented, the whole kind of energy terrain. So I would hesitate to say long term, but it does seem that we are, if we have uh, low inventories and we have demand growth and a good economy, then there's that upward pressure. But of course, it, it partly corrects then because people find alternatives. At some point, you get demand destruction. So, I, I mean, I, I guess I would still be in the volat volatile view of oil prices. But at least for now, there seems to be a, you know, there's a higher floor uh, under the price. You know, you have a very unexpected situation in which the Biden administration is encouraging U.S. oil and gas companies to produce more oil, which yes. uh, was not on their agenda for their first 10 months. Although releasing all those strategic reserves, you might have the opposite effect. Well, well, I, I think it, I think it's a, you know, the strategic reserve is part of response that's needed because we are basically if we continue the trend we're on we're moving into an energy emergency yes okay so and that run-up in energy prices has been mirrored across agriculture agricultural products and metals where does this i guess because china plays a big role in this story as you alluded to at the start that actually the major geopolitical contest is russia so is, is china and the u.s and it's interesting to see where Russia is, is going to fall within that. But how does this affect China's new map? Well, let me first say, just to characterize things a little bit, and I know, you know many of your listeners are in the trading community. One of the ideas I came up with in the new map was that we know the phrase big oil, and you know we're going to hear it in U.S. congressional hearings or see it on headlines and the news likes to use it. But I think we're moving, and this gets to your point, into an era that I describe in the new map as big shovels, because you're going to need a lot of mining. We're working on a study right now uh, at S&P Global. What is going to be the demand for copper if 
you know, if, if these net zero carbon targets by 2050 are, are to be realized, and you realize that the that the that the the amount of car, copper that will be needed is so much greater the physical supply. We're trying to quantify that and say, okay, if you have this number of electric cars, how much copper do you need? If you have this new transmission, how much copper? And the numbers really add up. And so I think that then leads to something that to back to your question, which we're going to have a new geopolitics of energy, not about oil and gas, although that is front and center right now, but about the commodities that you need, the, the metals, uh, minerals, that you need to achieve these targets that are out there. And, you know, you have to create really new supply chains for net zero carbon. And that's, I think, very much on the agenda. And that then gets you, as you said, to the big question of China and the big question of U.S.-Chinese relations. Yes, especially as many of those critical metals, the current supply chain, at least the, the mining and the chemical processing, uh, and even to the to the actual sort of battery creation, what sits in China? Okay, so where just staying with the energy crisis, putting Ukraine to one side at the moment, has this changed in any way or accelerated any particular the the, the trends you highlighted in the new map? Now that we're in such a heightened price environment for commodities, well, I think um, I think there's a, the awareness really wasn't there before that there really is a. a supply question. And I saw that the Biden administration has just uh, asked the Defense Department using the Defense Production Act to get into the act on uh, on minerals, metals. It's not clear exactly what they'll do. And the fact of the matter is, it's really hard to open a new mine in the United States. And the IEA says it can take 16 years to from discovery to open a new mine. I talked to some of the miners and they talk about 20 years or longer. Permitting is often a longer process than actually building the mine. And um, those problems are not gonna go away. And the challenge for a Biden administration, which on the one hand says, we wish to expedite mining in the United States. Oh, but by the way, much of our constituency comes from a very strong environmental side of it of the political spectrum, and they don't want these things to go ahead. And by the way, the strategy, let's just tie it up in litigation. And you know, in one of the great industries in the United States is litigation, and that yeah. can go on forever. And uh, I think there's a you know, case of on a mine in, I think it's Arizona, where an enormous amount of money has been sent since the year 2000 trying to get permitting, and it's still not permitted. So I think there are roadblocks in the U.S., and that means, uh, and the EU, of course, faces the same questions. And either, I mean, you look at lithium-ion batteries at this point, 80% from China, look at solar panels, 80% from China, where China doesn't have a huge resource, 70% of copper smelting in China. So these supply chains are there, and, you know, the Biden administration, for one, has explicitly tied its climate goals to somehow doing something about the supply chains. The EU in its documents was a little more circumspect, didn't name China directly. But in both cases, this question of dependence on China, and it's fine if everybody is part of what I call in the new map, the WTO consensus, we're all in it together, growing the economy. But in five or six years, we've gone from 
that WTO consensus to great power competition, strategic rivalry. And I don't see any sign that it's, that it's going to go in, a, in the other direction. And I think, among other things, it will be very interesting to see how the Chinese study and analyze the U.S. Um, and European sanctions on Russia and what lessons they draw from it for their own purposes. And they could go in one direction, but they could also go in another direction about it. Now, of course, Putin thought he had sanction-proofed his economy. Turned out that was one of his many miscalculations. So there's that energy diplomacy, which is the backdrop to much of your work. And I guess to date, or at least until recently, there was this dependency, and as you say, a WTO consensus where essentially China would be providing the the raw materials and the semi-finished products for the energy transition because of you know environmental concerns in Europe and sending that technology and that capability over to China to essentially outsource the, the pollution as a result. And we've covered that in a previous episode. Not only pollution, but just cost. When I, my previous book, the, the Quest, when I started writing it, I spent some time with the CEO of what was then the world's largest solar panel manufacturer in the world, a German company. By the time I finished the book, he'd gone bankrupt because of Chinese manufacturing. So again, it, overall, the development of these supply chains, which are incredibly complex, which were you know, basically founded or, or structured in terms of the focus was efficiency. People didn't look about security. It was just in time and just based upon this notion of a smooth operating global economy. You know, with all the supply chain disruptions we've seen over the last year and a half or so, and we'll continue to see, we learn that actually um, there are lessons to be taken there. And companies are now looking about how do you manage your supply chain differently? How much do you bring it home? To what degree do you put a security premium into what you're doing, which you didn't really have to worry about before? Because everything in the world of the WTO consensus, everything went very smoothly. Barriers were down, but we're in a, kind of moving in a different world now. Yeah, and I think we're going to end up on that topic of deglobalization. But you're very right to highlight there is these grand designs at a strategic national level, but also at a com company level to bring these supply chain home. But it takes so long, particularly when these we're talking about mining and intensive chemical processes. Exactly. And being able even to get them done, to get them built. I was told we just had our big CIR week conference in Houston and we thought we'd have 3,000 people. We had 6,300 people. But I talked to senior guy. I was really struck you know, from one of the major wind manufacturing companies. And he said it can take seven years to get a permit for an onshore wind turbine in Europe. You'd think, you'd think wind turbines would be kind of regarded as kind of innocuous. Well, look at the LNG terminals, right? We're, we're right in, we need to move on to it in a circumstance where all of these LNG terminals to date were built with the view of predominantly Asia sending the natural gas there. But now suddenly you've got Europe in a, a natural gas crisis that could be quite prolonged. And, and, you know, a lot of these proposed terminals have been held up in for, for three, four years. It's the permitting stage. Right. And, and, and not only, let me add, it's not only the terminals, it's the pipelines to move the gas as well. So you, you've got to uh, add that. Again, at, this, at the CERWI conference, there were representatives there from the European Union and some of the European countries. Literally, they were stalking the halls, looking for, you know, there are not that many LNG exporters, but they were looking for these people to say, can we get some more gas? 
Yes, yes. And we're, we're definitely on the sharp end of seeing that from a talent perspective. But just before we move, so China, so you've had this kind of, roughly speaking, and correct me if I'm being too simplistic on this, but China was providing the raw materials and the products for the energy transition, and Europe and, and the US in particular, in turn, were, fire, were, were providing that energy. Now we have a situation where obviously prices have gone up. That is a, a threat to China. But in the process, and, and part of the, the cause of continuing prices is Russia has invaded Ukraine. And those energy supplies out of Russia are, whilst they've not been officially sanctioned, slowing down and ceasing in some cases. Does that now provide China with an alternative and presumably much cheaper source of energy? Because I know a lot in, in the new map, you spoke about how Russia and China have been building substantial energy links and has been really the basis of their partnership over with Putin and Xi over the last number of years. You know, I did say in the, in the new map that in part a relationship that was once based upon Marx and Lenin is uh, now based on oil and gas. And I think as a result of this crisis, Russia becomes much more dependent on China as its market. And for China, you know, what they're mainly interested in Russia, aside from some advanced weapons, is its raw materials. Uh, so ch China becomes a sort of raw material dependency. Uh, Russia becomes a raw material dependency of the Chinese economy. Yes, you noted elsewhere, but you know, a, a vassal state almost. Yeah, yeah. I hesitate to <laughs> go quite as far as a vassal state, but we could say a dependency uh, of it. And uh, and we've seen, you know, just to pause for a second on Russia, really what the sanctions are seeking to do is to disconnect Russia from the global economy. But we've discovered, going to commodities, there are a lot of plugs and cords. There isn't just one. And the one, of course, that stands out is food. 30% of wheat exports from Russia and Ukraine, particularly important to the Middle East and North Africa. Prices for food going way up. Political turmoil that comes from that. So, And we see that in other minerals and things that people even there didn't realize how much Russia and, and Ukraine, uh, Ukraine, a very important provider of sort of certain components that German automobile manufacturers need. So turned out the world economy, we've gone through this 30 year period, going back to the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union, in which you really a much more globalized economy than people recognize. Yeah, we had Soren Schroeder, former CEO of Bungie, on just a, a couple of weeks back, talking prior to the, it was actually prior to the invasion on on food security and inflation, and that's a a pretty terrifying future if uh, when if that if the wheels come off that particular supply chain and on the prices that we're seeing. Well, I think I think partly, Paul, they've already the wheels are in the process of coming off right now, and I think when we see organizations like the World Trade Organization and the IMF are going to be very concerned about the global what food costs rising food costs will mean for particularly for the developing world. Okay, so let's let's move to Russia and the invasion. What is your sense of why, you know, was this energy policy by other means, you know, where how do we get there and what is the energy backdrop to this decision is Well, I, I think energy is so intermixed with Russia and Ukraine and Europe, you know, sometimes you don't know why you do something when you're writing a book, just there's an instinct. And why did I focus so much on 
Russia-Ukrainian relationship and what it meant for Europe. And I had a line in the book saying that, you know, that the issue that was going to blow up between the United States and, and Russia was Ukraine. I didn't envision in this, this horrible, barbaric way that that would happen. You know, what we see with this being happening to civilians and cities, but you could just see it and you could see Putin's obsession with litigating against, he wanted to relitigate the end of the Cold War. He consistently said, Ukraine is not a separate country. Uh, he said um, it never existed as a country. Two thirds of it belonged to Russia and one third to the Russian Empire, and one third to Poland, Austria, and so forth. So he, this has been his obsession and always objecting to the way the Cold War ended. But I did kind of marvel at it because his, among his many grievances was the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Remember, he said it was a worst geopolitical a national tragedy. Yeah, yeah, and so forth. And yet, let me ask you, who did better out of the end of the Soviet Union? No one did better than Vladimir Putin. If it had not been for the end of the Soviet Union, he might today be a retired mid-level former KGB officer living on a pension in what would still be Leningrad. I mean, he did really well out of this, but he wanted to reassert Russia as a, as a great power, 22 years in power. You know, he's now on his fifth American president. He's seen U.S. presidents come and go. And I think what happens when you're in power that long? Megalomania sets, sets in. You don't have people around you any longer who knew you back when, who can actually say to you, you know, kind of you're going off the track here, or do you want to think about this? And I think that his economic people, the people who are running the economy, the central bank, in the private sector, but who, who had been in his circle, who had been with him in, in St. Petersburg, apparently they were not part of the decision-making. And for them, you know, this is kind of end of the road for them. They're no longer going to be international figures. They've been sanctioned, and they're going to have to deal with an economy that's really malfunctioning now. So I think that the battle with Ukraine, battles over natural gas, which kind of were emblematic of the, of the conflict between the two, and Putin's belief that, you know, I've been here 22 years, Russia's a great power and Ukraine should not exist and uh, should be part of um, Russia. I think if you look back, you'd say his declaration of war was the essay he wrote last summer, 5,000 word essay, which apparently he did a lot of work on, where Ukrainians and Russians are one people. And that was his, um, that was his, uh, those were his talking points. But of course, what he's now done is killed many Ukrainians and made Ukrainians incredibly anti-Russian. He had the illusion that this would all be over in three days and that actually would be greeted happily by the Ukrainian people. And it turned out, you know, if you go down the five or six miscalculations he made, that was one of his biggest. Is there a sense in Fernand Braudel's sort of long view of history that when we look back on this, this will be classified as the first geopolitical shock or, or coming as a result of energy transition. And I mean by that, you have Russia that's been an energy superpower for a long time, but now there's a consequence of energy transition that leaves them weaker. And a reflexive result was to therefore create, build more territory, for example. I mean, is there something in that? Well, I think he clearly heard the Europeans you know, debating should natural gas even be allowed in, 
in, in the economy and we've got to get off it and so forth. And certainly some of the Middle East countries in terms of their strategy and diversification are looking towards a day when oil is going to be less important and gas will be less important and hydrogen will be a lot more important since uh, you're going from it not being important as an energy source at all to the Europe saying 25%. But I, I think in some ways, I mean, what comes out of this on the European side, I think, is both it accelerates the energy transition on one hand, but it also makes energy security, the things we're talking about, conventional energy sources much more important too, which, you know, kind of, there have been a kind of amnesia about energy security. Don't think Putin in doing this would have been thinking, worried about wind turbines and solar panels. You know, I think kind of, it's kind of dismissive of, of that, actually. I think he thought one of his other miscalculations is because of the relatively high dependence, sometimes exaggerated notion, but the relatively high dependence of Europe on Russian oil and gas, that the Europeans would say, oh my, this is terrible. But then they would sort of get on with business and that in a sense, taking Kiev would be Crimea part two. And I think that was one of his miscalculations. He never thought that it would do, what it would do was lead to Germany making a 180 degree turn and saying, we no longer believe in that uh, peace through trade that had been their policy going back to when Willy Brandt was chancellor of West Germany, but saying, you know, we're done with Russia. We don't want to be an importer of Russian energy. You know, it's an unwanted energy and saying that, you know, instead of taking 20 years to get permits to build LNG receiving terminals, which they didn't get, we're going to, Chancellor Schultz says, they're going to get it done in two or three years, they say, and uh, really hustling to make a change. And so, yes, they'll step up, I think, uh, investment in renewables for electric generation. I think the Germans, some Germans now regret that they shut down their nuclear power industry, which made them more dependent upon gas for electric generation. But I think, uh, you know, energy security and I've even seen in Chinese documents where they say, you know, we have to pay more attention to energy security, which means current energy sources as well as energy transition. But I think to go back to your question, I think Putin's main goal was um, it was a, a czarist project. You want to recreate the Russian empire. And, uh, and it's so strange because he's kind of used you know, he grew up in post-war St. Petersburg, where the memory of the Nazi siege of, of Leningrad was so much on his, the world in which he grew up, his parents, and so forth. And I think that, you know, his very fact that they invented this thing of, that this is about denazification. I mean, it's ludicrous, but it's like somebody's taken drugs and has taken these different things and come up with this narrative. But I think ultimately it's about power and, uh, his power and his sense of grandeur at, you know, age 70, his mission is to recreate um, the Soviet or the Russian Empire. Yeah. And within that, the trap was that uh, as, as much ink has been spilt, you know, by U.S. generals and, and so forth, that he wasn't actually probably having the right intelligence being fed to him. I think one of the remarkable things, there are many different ways in which cyber warfare has come into it. And one is the U.S. government's preemptive leaking of technology that they would, of intelligence that they would have normally kept secret. I think Biden, I think, just said, 
why are we keeping this secret? They're, they're going to invade. Let's tell people. And I think now the message about discord in the Kremlin, you, there has to be when you have what has basically been so far, it's a horror, it's hell for the Ukrainians, but a kind of catastrophe for the Russian military. Uh, there has to be recriminations here as to whose fault it is. And you do hear about various people who are part of his circle now under house arrest. And, you know, there will be a hunt for scapegoats. He's certainly not going to take responsibility for himself. And there's still the question, does he really know what's going on? Does anybody dare tell him the truth? Or is it like uh, being in Stalin's circle to, you know, to be a truth to power was a passport to uh, prison or death? Yeah. Um, well, I don't think he listens to this podcast, so uh, yeah. it'll still be all right. But uh, I think we're banned in Russia, actually. But um, OK, so you've highlighted two consequences as a result of Russia's invasion that are pertinent to this story. One is energy transition and the other is energy security. Staying on the energy security side, and the, I guess we're talking the short, medium term 2022. No one knows how this is going to play out. What do you see? as how that plays out in Europe and the US. How can a short, you know, if the, the pipelines do get shut off on natural gas, what are the consequences of that? What do you see at a policy level of the US trying to support Europe? How do you think the next few months could play out with that in light? I had breakfast the other day with the CEO of one of the largest German companies, and he was saying there's more flexibility on oil than there is gas because of the pipelines, but it looks we're in the middle of it. We don't know where it's going to go. And, you know, I think things where we are today would not have been expected six weeks ago. So everything one says is contingent upon what happens with events. But what does look like, you know, is in the cards is that increasingly the self-sanctioning that's going on right now may become formalized. And Europe was getting, you know, roughly more, something over 4 million barrels a day of oil, crude oil and product from Russia. And if you don't have that, where do you make it up from? That's a big problem. And I think that, um, and of course on gas, it's the same thing. You know, you see Germany now having plans, they have to, to ration natural gas. So I think, you know, obviously for the trading community, this means huge, you know, huge disruption. I talked to some of the companies who just say, well, it'll be reshuffling the Russian barrels that don't go to the to Europe will end up going to Asia. Well, they'll still have to get there. What happens if there is um, sanctions on insurance or sanctions on ship owners? You know, how do you get it? Uh, how do you move it? So I think it's going to be, you know, I, I call the last chapter, uh, the new map, the disrupted future. I think it's a, we're now in a disrupted present and supply chains. And I think what you need in this case is you need governments working really closely with industry. I can see in the United States, that's a problem. There's a lot of hostility. You know, government doesn't really like the in industry, but I think you have to, this has to be industry and government work together in World War II, in the Suez crisis and so forth. I think you need to waive restrictions and there needs to be a much a daily understanding of, of the logistical situation and how supplies can be moved around to mitigate this divorce that's now happening between Europe as a, as a buyer and uh, Russia as a supplier. And I think it's urgent and I think it's disappointing 
to, to hear people talking about price gouging and things like that when what you need is collaboration to manage what is a crisis and could be an emergency. And if we, if we do see prices continue to go up, it will be very disruptive and it will affect the politics of countries too. So you need to get beyond uh, partisan politics and slogans, roll up the sleeves and work together to manage what could be a very difficult situation ahead. And you need the trading companies, you need the, the oil companies, you need governments and you need the major consumers in a really tight dialogue to manage this, to kind of get to the other side. Yeah. And it was fascinating having just recently returned from the, the FT's commodity conference in Lausanne. You know, there was a real underlying concern about a scenario where there's such volatility driven by these events that you effectively cease to have functioning commodity and energy markets. There is no price discovery, and that you know would have be calamitous, you know, for for the whole world if, if that were to happen. You know, just these markets to cease. Exactly. I mean, again, people. It's it's really remarkable when you look at the global oil market, the global gas market, global oil market, 100 million barrels a day. It worked. <laughs> the system very smoothly rarely were there any real disruptions of any significance or anything supplies were managed you know a lot of logistics were managed the trading community plays a very important role in helping the whole thing i mean that's what trading does but if you reach a stage where the system buckles and you don't know i mean i mean right now things could go in two directions some signs the russians will just say oh we always really just wanted eastern ukraine Sorry, this other thing was a, a, a diversion. Uh, or the other is they start importing mercenaries from Syria and other places, step it up, and use chemical weapons or uh, tactical nuclear weapons. And then we move into a whole different era. So far, it's been, you know, it has not been a direct confrontation between Russia and NATO, between Russia and the United States. It's, it's, you know, obviously the weapons are flowing and so forth. There's been great care. History is littered where things happen that weren't intended to happen and things escalate. So, and certainly anything like that would only further damage, uh, damage the energy markets and their ability to function. It will take governmental policy intervention and collaboration to get through these months, because I assume one of the most critical factors everyone's think, working on is the EU remaining unified, Europe remaining unified. And I assume the longer this goes on without there being effective solutions and, and communication about how to manage this crisis, we could start seeing European countries, Italy, maybe others, decide that they just have to go their own way because they can't survive without energy from Russia at that point. Or that they can't survive with very high prices. I mean, the po they can't manage the politics, they can't manage the economics. Paul, I think you've gone to a very central point, which is... You know, you have to, it was interesting at Sierra Week, one of the very incisive CEOs said, you know, we shouldn't be, and this was three or four weeks ago, we shouldn't be thinking about this in weeks. We should be thinking about this in terms of months. And if it goes on, I think you're right that the, you know, there's a coalition now, a congruence. But if political leaders are suddenly dealing with people protesting in the street because energy prices are too high, if you have people blockading highways because energy prices are too high. If you have the yellow vest of France writ large, then governments start to think about their own political survival, ordering their own country. So I think that 
you pointed to, what is a very important risk, which highlights the need to to manage the situation and not and not deal with it, you know, with press releases and uh, big public statements. I mean, this is a thing that requires management. We are in a new terrain. And it's fascinating as well, because then when you move on to energy transition, you can absolutely see the macro acceleration of energy transition as countries look to energy independence through, in the case of Europe, they don't have the same scale of fossil fuels, so through renewables and so forth. But there is that also the alternative argument, which is we could see in a period of sustained prices over the next few months, year, that actually some of the environmental policies to put costs on around carbon removed to alleviate the current crisis, which would, I imagine, would set back energy transition significantly as companies no longer feel confident in governmental policies being there to stay. Yeah, well, that's always the question about the stability of government policies. If you're making investment decisions, you're not making them for the next six months, you're making them for the next six years or 12 years. So I think that's there. The other thing, Paul, go back to supply chains. I mean, I'm sure you're seeing it in terms of the people that are necessary around the energy transition, but also the materials. These wind and solar depend upon these global supply chains. At least right now, we see costs going going up there, not going down. So, you know, it's not a smooth path, but I think you will see commitment. Let's get more more wind. Let's get more solar, do everything we can to reduce dependence directly or independent, indirectly on imported uh, energy and move to climate goals. But I think we saw the change in the European taxonomy, which after much debate said, oh, actually, nuclear does have a role. And it was uh, Paris versus Berlin on this saying, well, actually, natural gas has a role till 2045 after having wanting to ban it. And I think one area we haven't talked about, but look at President Macron, he started off saying um, that he wanted to sort of reduce France's dependence on nuclear uh, energy, which is, what is it, is it about 80% of their electricity, I think. He's just now talks about six new nuclear power plants and perhaps another eight. And the UK is now talking about nuclear as well. This is, um, and LNG has come of, has really come of age. People really didn't, I mean, one of the things that really hit me is in January, for about half the month, the U.S. provided more natural gas in the form of LNG to Europe than was coming in terms of gas through Russian pipelines. Now, the Russians went down, then they've gone up again. Suddenly, the recognition and the recognition by an administration that came in with no interest in it, really, not much interest, that actually the uh, U.S. LNG industry is a geopolitical strategic asset for the United States and for Europe. Just think what would have happened if there was not U.S. LNG, and this industry really only took off in 2016 to supply Europe. Going back to where we talked before, it would have been much harder for Europe to stand up where it is. Yeah, gas becoming a global market um, over the last four or five years has been fascinating. And yet this is a backdrop, as I mentioned earlier. The U.S. policy has not supported the rapid expansion of liquefaction along the Gulf Coast. Right? We just neither had the financiers because they weren't able to get the, the long-term deals on the other side. So now we are going to see, I assume, a big wave of that. Yeah, I mean, certainly the Department of Energy says it will get these things approved. But even as it is, you, you know, Paul, it's quite remarkable. 
I mean, there was a tiny little LNG plant in Alaska that went back, I think, to the 60s or 70s, but operated on and off. But basically, the first shipment of U.S. LNG left in 2016. In 2022, six years later, the United States, until Gutter comes in with its next phase, will be the world's largest exporter of LNG. Boy, that happened fast. Yes, in that perspective, yes. Rounding this up, so that's a really good, I think, overview of of the challenges that face Europe and the US in the wake of Russia's invasion. Where does China sit in all this? Is is this you know something that uh, is highly instructive for them? Does this further position their hand in that geopolitical contest that appears to be arising between the US and China? You know, I think. As you ask that, I think about a scene that I describe in the new map when I was at the St. Petersburg International Energy Economic Forum in June of 2019. Vladimir Putin's big guest was Xi Jinping, president of China. And Putin began by apologizing, saying, I apologize, Mr. President. I kept you up to 4 a.m. your time talking. And Xi replied, that's okay. We never have enough time. To never talk. enough time. And the answer is, and obviously they spent a lot of their time, no doubt, talking about their common uh, endeavor to replace or overturn what they see as the international order uh, established by the U.S. in Western Europe. And then right at the beginning of the Olympics this year, uh, Xi and Putin signed this document saying that there are no limits to our cooperation. Now, one wonders at that point whether Putin had showed all of his cards in terms of what he was doing or kind of said, well, we're going to take back Eastern Ukraine. You just wonder if Xi knew as a calculating person, and given that, in fact, Ukraine was an important element on the Belt and Road for China, and there were a lot of Chinese students in Ukraine, et cetera, whether he would have signed that document if he knew what was actually in Putin's mind. Well, of course, we'll never know the answer to that. But I think that um, China, while saying it's neutral, we should have peace, basically so far has been standing by its uh, its partner, you know, whether they use the term or not, its strategic partner. So I think this kind of accentuates the, um, the divide. It will be very significant what comes out of, you know, as this plays out, what, uh, what the lasting impact will be on U.S. relations with China and Europe's relations with China. And uh, I think it seems from what we read and hear that there's been a policy debate in China about how to handle this. And uh, they've maintained a strategic ambiguity, but they've certainly also remained very, you know, their strategic partnership with Russia continues. Yeah. One final question, then two final questions. The first one being a coda to that. Where, where does India sit in this? It seems to me quite remarkable, and maybe that's my own naivety, that they, they, they continue to, at best, stand on the fence, at worst, support Russia. Yes, India is very interesting because the U.S. and India, you know, traditionally, there was a lot of tension in the relationship. I'm on the energy think tank for the Indian government. I'm the only non-Indian on it. And I've observed how the relationship between the U.S. and India has gotten so much deeper in so many different dimensions. And in fact, I mean, the Indian leaders have said the fact that the U.S. exports uh, LNG and oil to India has been one of the new foundations in this expanded relationship. And you have the Quad, which is India, the United States, Japan, and Australia, same collaborating in Asia, 
the Chinese see this containment, but um, collaborating, I, I think is the way they, they put it. I don't think it's containment because they can't contain China. But India has a historic relationship with Russia. Uh, the substantial part of India's weapons military is Russian. Uh, and so they have um, they've kind of stood apart from it. They've reached out. I mean, oil is a big problem for the Indian government because it import, India imports 85% of its oil and oil prices go up. That is a big blow, a big hit on the economy. And so they're talking about buying Russian oil with rupees. And uh, no doubt it would be at that 20 or $30 discount uh, from Brent, if that's the case. But I think India has just kind of stood back. I mean, the three other members of the BRICS, Brazil, uh, India, and China have, uh, none of them, I mean, Biden said that Russia's going to be a pariah. Russia's not a pariah for those countries. So uh, I think they're kind of, navigating their position. I know, you know, the Dr. Jane Shanker, Shanker the Indian uh, foreign minister, has talked about an era in which the U.S. kind of was receding from its dominant role in the world order. But on the other hand, India has really moved to strengthen its relationship. But I think this has introduced new strains in that relationship. And so I think for India, it's also, you know, getting the balance right has been a, a big challenge. We talk about, you used to talk about a disruptive future and now a disruptive present. Basically, we've had a period of globalization, international consensus since the end of the, the Second World War, for the most part. Are we fundamentally now entering a new era of deglobalization and a really fragmented future? I know that's a, a terrifying and big question, but what's your no, take it is. on I, An earlier book I did was called The Commanding Heights the battle for the world economy. And it was basically, how did we move from an era of governments dominated economies, dominated the commanding heights of their economies to an open global trading system with confidence in markets, borders coming down, the growth of global trading and everything like that. But I did have a line in there saying that if you have a big economic downturn, you'll see people back away from it. So I think in a way, 2008, was the beginning of the backing away from it, kind of ideologically. And then you had, uh, as tensions rose between the US and China and became more evident around 2015, you started to see, we're not all in this together, sort of a technology, it was too strong to say technology war, trade war between in the United States. And yet these economies are so tightly integrated at the same time. But I think, I guess the phrase I would say, I mean, globalization, has many elements to it, instantaneous communications, but then you have walls up of, of the internet. So I guess I would kind of say maybe in some say deglobalization, I'd say like more of a fragmented globalization, I think would be the way to describe it. But there isn't the same belief and confidence that the world is flat, that it's, that, that it's uh, all one great global market and you can invest the U.S. government really encouraged American companies, not energy alone, but other energy, to invest in Russia as part of creating this one global economy. And certainly, I mean, I think the war in Ukraine is a further big step to um, to that fragmentation. You know, does it end up being more blocks that we'll have in the world that we didn't have before? 
And that's where the relationship between U.S. and China just becomes so critical for what the rest of the 21st century will look like. Yeah. And, you know, that only highlighting how much more challenging it is going to be for the commodity trading world that is the the cogs that enable the global trade of, of energy, metals and ags, as historically your risk was really just market risk. And I think it's, we've all been reminded now of operational risk, geopolitical risk, financing risk, all of those other things coming in. That make- That's right. And as, I, as you say, I mean, the trading community is the ones that really provided the lubrication for the connection between economies, for economic growth, for the ability to make the whole system work. And it will be more difficult. I mean, that's I mentioned we're doing this new study on copper, and that's exactly it, that it is. It isn't just about, I mean, there's always been other issues, you know, politics and so forth. But those other issues are going to loom larger than non-market risk. You're going to have to rethink political risk. I mean, certainly that's, if you were in the plane leasing business and you now have 16 planes in Russia that you're never going to see again, or and Boeing, they can't, Boeing's not going to send parts for the Russian airliners. It's a different world in which uh, political calculations are going to loom much larger. And you and it's, you know, when you realize that, I mean, a lot of factors at work, but what Vladimir Putin has done is a horror for Ukraine, huge misfortune for Russia, and a big setback for the world economy, and for those people, including the trading community, who make that economy work. Yeah. Daniel, it's been an absolute pleasure, as always, to have you on and uh, to bask in your uh, your insight and knowledge of this space. And um, and I hope we can have you back on in a in another year and and see where we stand because we we seem right at the precipice of just a many different challenges that the global energy markets and commodity markets face. And um, you know, it's, it is very important and useful to have those highlighted and and in some way divined and navigated. Paul, your community and the people who listen to this podcast play such an important role in the world economy that I really value the chance to get together with you. And I hope if we, in another year, we do it and maybe things will better all around. So I think that should be at least our hope. We'll stay realistic too. So thank you for the chance to join you today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.